All right. Turn with me over to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. Ephesians, chapter 2. The title of the sermon is Preserved by Grace to Work. Preserved by Grace to Work. Ephesians, chapter 2, looking at verses 3 through 10. Paul is writing, and he says, Among them, too, we all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive (coughs) together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us, in Christ Jesus. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, verse 10, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Lord, help as we study your word. There are five things in this passage about which I'd like to speak to you. One, our former life. Two, a wonderful fortune that has been bequeathed to us. Three, what it means to be promoted by God. Four, what it means to to come into a place where he puts you on display as a result of that promotion. And five, what it means to be preserved by grace. Paul is writing to the Ephesians to help them understand the places in which they were. Sometimes we need the contrast in order to understand how benefited we have become. We are a people who have been saved from a fate worse than death, an eternal separation from Almighty God. We will understand that in its fullness once we pass through this physical body which no longer can live, it expires. Once we pass through death and graduate to glory, we will understand that more than we do now because we will, we will know that which we have escaped, that we were destined for another spot. Paul says here in verse 3, for we were by nature children of wrath. We were inheriting that. Judgment should have been ours. But because we are experiencing his mercy on a regular basis every day, not just the Christian, but all of mankind, that we still get to breathe is the mercy of God. That he provides for us our food. That he allows for relationships to not be those which enter us beyond repair. That he he gives us employment. And when we don't have employment, he gives us a government to send us a check. All of this is his mercy. His mercy and more that I cannot explain. David said, if I were to count the ways how God blessed me, I'd run out of days. He is so good to us. Yet there's part of us here while we, while we remain that doesn't appreciate nearly as much as we should how good he has been to us because there's a little bit that always compares who we are to who, to, to who somebody is not, making ourselves feel better about who we are. So when we, when we try to gauge our own morality and how, how much we have progressed as human beings in becoming our best version of ourselves, nobody ever compares himself to Mother Teresa. We all feel bad then. We, we feel like we're less than. 
This woman gave her life for people that, that, that she might get a disease from. I mean, her entire life was that which was spent to help others. And, you know, we're, we're out there earning and doing and having fun. And, and, and I don't know how many movies she saw, but probably less than us. I don't know how many vacations she went on, but they were probably less luxurious than ours. This was a woman that was phenomenal, yet we feel because she was so great, there's no way for us to feel great if we put our lives next to hers. So we like to compare ourselves with Hitler. That makes us feel much better. <laughs> At least I'm not that. And so comparing ourselves with the worst makes us who are bad feel good. But we are bad. The fact that Mother Teresa makes us feel bad and she is bad compared to Jesus shows how bad we are. That all of us has fallen short of the glory of God and there's no way any of us can scratch our way, work our way, earn our way back into his grace. There is no way. But because we haven't done what we believe is the worst and those who are deserving of the kind of judgment we think children of wrath ought to get, not us, we think we're pretty good and we, we deserve, a, we, we, we almost think we deserve a little bit of that grace. They don't. And Paul is doing everything he can to try to heighten the contrast because contrast helps our sinful nature understand how good it is when we get good when we should have deserved bad. Otherwise, we don't get it. Now, empirically, we ought to understand what good is, even if bad has not presented itself. The angels do not have a problem understanding what peace is, though they have, they, they have never known chaos. The angels don't have a, a problem with understanding joy, though they have never known sorrow. We think, well, it's only when you get, get to be really forlorn and your soul is messed up, that you can appreciate the joyful moments. You, 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 you like food better when you remember what it was like to, 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 to fast. Once you've deprived yourself, once you don't have, then you appreciate what you do have. That comes as a result of our fallenness, that we need the disparity. We need the difference to understand how we need to appreciate that which is really good. Uh, empirically, we should not. But Paul is trying to help the Ephesians understand I realize you aren't perfect, so let me lay it out to you. You used to be those people who indulged the flesh without restraint. You gave in to your lust on a regular basis. There was no stop sign when you tried to do wrong. You just did it. There, wasn't, there weren't any breaks. You did not have any reins on your life. You let it go. And you let yourself be. That's what you were. And as a result of it, you deserved wrath. We think we deserved better because we judge ourselves by the worst. But if we judge ourselves by Christ, we all are really messed up. The only proper measure by which you can judge yourself is perfection. That's it. Most of us, Adam and Eve understood it because they, did, they didn't know anything about what wrong was. They knew what right was, but they didn't know anything about what wrong was. And when they did wrong, they realized, oh, this is what I deserve. I get it now. Because we are so wrong, and there are people who we believe are more wrong than us, we believe our less wrong deserves better. We don't think our less wrong should be judged like those we believe are more wrong. 
Remember, Adam and Eve did not knock off a 7-Eleven. They didn't kill anybody. All they did was eat from a tree from which they were not supposed to. If we were them, knowing what we know today, we'd say, wait a minute, God. I get a redo, right? I mean, all I did was eat from... <laughs> I'm trying. I didn't try to hurt nobody. Lord, are you kidding me? I get kicked out of my house. I can't get the kind of food from the grocery store like I used to. It's going to yield thorns and thistles now where it used to be just a bountiful supply. Uh, Eve, oh, it's going to hurt to bear children. Why should I have them? Oh, Lord, this, this, really? That's what we would have said, thinking that somehow God was unjust. Adam and Eve understood. We blew it. We rebelled against a holy God. He gave us everything we needed for life and godliness. And we threw it away and decided to follow another God. We deserve what we get. Paul is trying to help the people understand you were children of wrath. Knowing that to be the case, he says, then, but God. He said, I know how you formerly lived. But let me tell you how God looked at you. But God, being rich in mercy. God's rich in everything good. He's rich in judgment, too. He's got enough of it. But he's rich in everything good. But I'm really glad he's rich in mercy. Because I need it in spades. I need it regularly. If you were to talk to my wife about some of the stuff I say when I get out of bed, first thing, first thing, first thing when I get out of bed. I don't know if it's religious. I don't know if it's because I know what I'm not. Maybe a combination of all the above, but I'm not trying to change it. The first thing I say every day is, Lord, have mercy on me. I really know what I'm not. And I am grateful that I get to draw breath every day of my life. If I have a really bad day, and there are many of them, if I have a really bad day, I console myself with the idea that Jesus died for me and I'm not going to hell. It's good. It's good. It's good, Lord. I'm not going to complain today. I'm grateful for what you did for me. Even if it goes all bad all week, all month, all year, I want you to know. Even if we have to do 20, 20, 20 times. Lord, I want you to know, you died for me, and I'm grateful I'm not going to hell. Boy, I'm just happy today, even though I should be sad. You see these tears? Yes, I'm not happy about what's going on, but I want you to know I'm grateful, I'm grateful, I'm grateful. Lord, have mercy on me again. God is rich in mercy, and all of us need it every day. Now listen to me. The definition of mercy is not receiving what you do deserve. The definition of grace is receiving what you don't deserve. Mercy, not receiving what you do deserve. Grace, receiving what you don't deserve. If you believe you... The, the problem with the definition of mercy as I gave it is that some people believe they deserve much better and so they're mad at God for not getting it. Why? Because they compare themselves to the worst. They don't compare themselves to him. Paul here again has amplified the idea of what we deserve, children of wrath. And he says, but God gave mercy to you. And he's rich in it. Do you remember the story of the, the widow in, 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 in 2 Kings chapter 4? Elisha, 
who was the protege to Elijah, is now the prophet. And one of the sons of the prophet has a wife. That son, one of the sons of the prophet who had a wife died, and he died in debt. The rule was if a man died owing people funds, they could take everything that the widow had, and that meant the children, too, to work off the debt. This woman was really concerned. She went to Elisha and said, the creditors are coming. They're going to take my boys. I don't know what to do. Elisha says to you, what do you have in your house? She says, I don't have a thing except a little jar of oil. He says, okay, you got enough. <laughs> what a statement. It doesn't actually say that, but this is the implied. You got enough. What you need to do is go find a bunch of jars in the city. Ask all your neighbors for all their jars. Don't get a few, get many. She brings as many as she can. He said, now, close the door, get that little jar of oil, and start pouring into every jar. Now, in her mind, she's thinking, what for? Why do I want to transfer oil from one jar to another? That doesn't do, there's no increase there. There's no, why, why would, why did, this don't make no sense. But I want to do what the prophet says. And so she starts pouring. And as she pours, she fills up the jar. And then she looks at the jar from which the oil poured, and it's still full. Bring me another one, boy. Give me another one. Full, full. Keep them coming. Keep them coming. Keep them coming. Pour, pour, pour. He says, now that you've done what you need to do, take, take the oil, sell it, and pay off all your debt. There must have been a lot of oil in that house to pay off all her debt if the man, the creditor, was coming to take her children. We're not talking she owed 15 bucks. That was a lot of oil. I share with you the story because it's often used as a, as a kind of a, a metaphor for how we need to give, and none wrong with that. It is that we need to continue to pour our resources out on a lost and dying world, believing that God can fill us as we empty ourselves. And he will do it. But I think the, the broader statement is, that is made here is that God, being rich in mercy, as long as there are vessels, he keeps pouring. Keeps pouring mercy. Just keeps pouring mercy. Just keeps pouring mercy. And there are about 8 billion vessels. And he just keeps pouring. And it never runs out. This is the goodness of our God. It's not like he, he said, oh, the aggregate of humanity is about 20 million people over the history of mankind, and I've only got enough mercy for 20 million and one. So at this next birth in 2023, in January 24th, that's it. It runs out. Just keeps pouring. I am grateful for the richness of his mercy. Because we all need it. I deserved wrath. I deserved punishment. But I'm not receiving it. Jesus, I'm grateful. I want you to know how grateful I am. So grateful for your goodness to me. Your forgiveness. Your kindness. Thank you for absolving me for every, everything I've done. rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us 
the kind of love that God has for us is almost unexplainable. We, we, try, to, we try to portray it in language with the Greek. And, and, and there's no human verse that can really describe God well. So we need a lot of different perspectives. That, that's why it takes an entire Bible with 66 books for us to understand God well because human language is flawed. And, and when we talk about the love of God, it is expansive and almost unknowable. Once we think we know it, it goes beyond our ability to know it. Paul talks about it later in the chapter. He says, how wide, how deep, how long, how high is the love of God which surpasses comprehension? It's beyond our ability to know how much he cares about us, but he does give us a little kind of human metaphor to try to at least see it. A little one. It, it doesn't approximate, but it, it's close. We can get some lessons from it. It's, it's, it's parenting. Parenting. Parents, why do you have people? Why do you have children? Why? They're going to cost you. Ten years ago, a little study came out. In Northern Virginia, the average that it takes to take a child from birth to 18, graduate from high school, is about $386,000. That's the average. That's the child in Great Falls, much more. <laughs> the child in Manassas, much less. In Northern Virginia, that's what it, about $386,000. And, and, and parents know, I will never see that money again. It's gone. It was on piano lessons, and they don't even like piano. It was on dance lessons, and they are horrible. It was on football. They'll never make it to the NFL. You will never see that money. Gone. Food, clothing, utilities, housing, gone. That's where they, that's where they, why do you have them? Why, do, and plus they're going to cause you headaches. They're going to take all your time. They're going to make you mad. They're, they're gonna, after you provided for them, they're going to look at you one day and say, so? <laughs> they're they're going to have bad attitudes. It's going to be, why do you have them? Why do you have them? You're only producing problems for yourself. And we had seven. <laughs> because of the great love. Because of great love. We do it again and again and again. My wife, if she had her way, would still be pregnant today. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. She was sick all nine months for all the pregnancies. And she said, I, she, she said, I just keep having it because she, she's a great mother. And she just enjoys the process of raising people. And it costs her so much. But it's hard, it's hard to put a measure on love. It's really hard. And we don't even come close to how much God loved us. We don't even come close because of the great love with which he loved us. Why does he love us? Not because we're so good, because we're not. The only reason God loves us there's no reason. I do a lot of marital counseling, and uh, at least Cynthia and I did. 
And it's often that the wife will say to the husband, at some point, why do you love me? Looking for some stroke of affirmation in her own soul that, that gives her this sense that, her, that she is distinct from all the other people on the planet beyond just the fact that 20 years ago he said, I do. And it's, it's, an, it's an impossible question to answer well. So, as my friend Pastor Jim says, men just fake a seizure. Because it's a trick question. There's no good answer. It doesn't matter what you say, it's wrong. You're trying really hard. Oh, because you're beautiful. What about when I don't have makeup? Because you cook well. What about when I don't? Uh, is there any way I... <laughs> what can I... The best way that doesn't stroke her ego, though, the best way to answer it is to say, I love you because I chose to. Because any reason you give at some point, she... She's going to violate it. Just like any reason that she would give about you, you're going to violate. We're human. We, we blow it. And if you violate it, does that mean now that your love needs to be retracted? It means no, that your love goes beyond what you said you loved her for. Which means you decided to love her. Doesn't matter whether she's pretty. Doesn't matter whether she's nice. Doesn't matter whether she's kind. It doesn't matter whether she cooks. It doesn't matter whether she cleans. It doesn't matter whether she treats you well. She could do all those things horribly. Doesn't matter. Because you decided to. That's the only way that God can love us. It's because we do everything wrong. We offend him with our thoughts, the intent of our hearts. Oh, gosh, I mean, how many spouses would stay together if the, each spouse could read each other's minds? Divorce would be the order. In fact, nobody would ever get married. They'd never get married. It just wouldn't happen. God knows what's on the inside of your brain. He still loves you. Great love with which he loved us. He said, you're mine anyway. If he just decided to love us, if it was his decision, not based on anything we did, then there's nothing we can do to change his mind. Glory be to God in heaven. That's all the, the fortunate, the fortune of the dispensing of his inheritance. And then, I mean, I could end the sermon there. Paul could just stop there. And it ought to make the Ephesians just go, and worship. But then he says, let me tell you what else he did. He didn't just forgive you and pour out his mercy and, and love you beyond comprehension. He decided to promote you. He raised you up from the dust. He, he caused you to now live again though you were dead. Though you were dead in your transgressions and sins. He decided to raise you up. He gave you new life. It would be enough if he had just wiped out all your transgressions and the consequences we deserved as a result of it. That would be great. I mean, if we were public enemy number one, 
Well, we wound up in front of a judge one day, and the CIA, FBI, and all the other acronyms were looking for you or me. And the judge, at the end of the day, says this, after hearing all the evidence, I want you to know, you are guilty as charged, but we are wiping out every one of your sins, every one of your crimes. We're expunging your record. You now have no penalties to bear. You are free. How happy would we be? <laughs> that would be enough. I, I'm off. Whoa! I don't even deserve it. This is stunning. I don't know why, but it happened. Wow. And then the judge says, by the way, we're going to promote you to mayor. And in four years, you're going to, we're going to try to get you to be governor. What is this? Who are you and why are you saying these things to me? We are so used to, to experiencing the grace of God that we forget how magnanimous it is. He said, not only am I raised, I've forgiven you, I'm raising you, and then I'm, I'm seating you with me in heavenly places. How, what, are you, really? Yeah, because that's the only place from which you can rule like you need to over the sin in your life. If you, if you aren't with me, experiencing my power, allowing the, the authority that I possess from my throne to be in your life, sin would have its way with you. Even though I've forgiven you from the stuff you've done, you still would, would, would have, have a difficult, have difficult time trying to not fall into it again. If you're up here with me ruling over it, then you've got power to say no to that and yes to things you should. I need you to be up here with me. Ruling, ruling. <sighs> Promotion. He promotes you. This, this, is, this is, by the way, this is Christianity 101. This is the basics. Not only does he promote, he puts you on display. That, he says, seated, you with, seated with you, that in the ages to come, he might display the glory of his grace and inheritance among the saints. God is trying to put you on display. Um... I, uh, <laughs> I had the privilege of um, securing a copy of a very rare book. And uh, it's, it's, an, it's a first edition, original, of Phyllis Wheatley's poems from 1773. There are only 95 in existence. Most of them are in horrible condition. I bought one. It cost me more than I wanted to pay. But do you know that book is not on my coffee table? <laughs> that book's in a safe. And I'm trying to figure out how I can display it in such a way that it can both be protected and seen. Because I want to have a stake in my heritage. I want to be able to say I paid something that was of value to my existence from an ancestor, not genetically, but somebody who was like me that went through things. I've got a piece of American history that means something to me. And everything within me wants to display it. The more valuable something is, the more you care for it. You know how much it costs to get grace to you? Do you know how much it costs to get mercy to you? It's free to you. But it didn't come free. It's free to you. You couldn't earn it. You don't deserve it. 
but it didn't come free. The wrath we deserved, he poured out on Jesus. Every bit was on him. The pain, the rejection, the sickness, the, the rebellion, everything was on him such that the earth became dark that day. And whatever it meant when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't know what it means, but it's not good. That there was a separation between what the Son had become and who the Father was, and that the Father could not have sin in his presence. And it's almost as if he metaphorically turned his back on the Son, which would have been the first time in all of, all of whatever history is beyond human, where the Father and the Son did not fellowship. Again, I don't even know what that means, but it was bad. It was horrible, and that should have been our lot, and he took it all. It's free to us, but it didn't come free. You cost a lot, and God is trying to make sure you're just not on the coffee table. He's trying to display you to the world, to let the world know, this is what it costs to get them. This is what I think about mankind. That's how much I love. Look at how I have transformed him, her, to become that. That can be you. Come and get the inheritance I paid for. He's trying to display that. And then to close, he's really working hard to try to get you to work. I mean, all the stuff that's been done, there ought to be something on the inside of you that says, you know, maybe I ought to figure out some kind of way to, to thank my God tangibly. Yes, with the words of my mouth, praise and worship, absolutely. But maybe, maybe I ought to theologically pay it forward. Maybe I ought to do some things that show, shows to my God how grateful I am for what he did for me because somebody provided an environment through their works that helped me get right. Somebody's watching your children right now. Somebody decided to give toward this building. Somebody decided to keep the lights on here. Somebody decided to employ some folks so that you could be better prepared and equipped to be an excellent husband or wife, good employee, great friend. Works were done so that you could come in. I wonder what works need to be done by you so others might come in. You've been preserved in order that you might be saved and worked, that you might work for something else. He says works that have been prepared beforehand that you should walk in. Meaning, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Somebody may have created something that you can just step into and you couldn't do it on your own if you tried, but somebody else crafted it, kind of architected it just for you. You can step in and you can make a difference. And for the first 10 years of my life, all I did was do what other people told me to do. Brett, we need you to go to Howard University to start a campus ministry. Okay. I didn't wake up with that idea. Somebody decided to craft a work for me. I came here. Mark Hawk was my pastor. Brett, we need you to do small groups. We need you to be the guy who sets up and breaks down on Sunday morning. We need you to help out with praise and worship. We need you to teach evangelism to our people. We need you to administrate. It went on and on. I had a bunch of different hats. Never complained. Happy every day. Somebody was choreographing good works for me that I could walk in them. Grace loves. Hello. We're trying to help you do some good works. Children's ministry. Go change a diaper and praise the Lord doing it. 
We're trying to help you let your hands do what is natural and provide spiritual benefit to others. Good works that have been fashioned. Now, if you can hear from God about what your good works ought to do, what your good works ought to be so you can do them best all by yourself in, in the absence of other people and he speaks to you really clearly. He doesn't talk to me as well that clearly. I still need other people in my life. But if he does, I'm happy for you. Do them. But until you get to the point where you can, let the other people who know what good works look like craft them for you, architect it for you, and you just step into them so you can do them and advance the kingdom of God without having to reinvent the wheel. Prepared, good works. You are called to work. Why? Because you've been preserved on the planet to stay here and make an impact. If we're all about getting you to heaven, somebody should have done you a favor when you, when you got saved and left you in the baptismal just a little bit longer. <laughs> it's not that. That's really a bad metaphor. That's just horrible. I, I got to stop using that one. That's too old. My point is God left you here so that you might be something to somebody. Heaven's much better than here. All of us desire it at some point. But he left us here. Because there are good works you need to be involved with to help other people come to the knowledge of the truth. Let's pray. Daddy, I love you. Bless us so that we can serve you and make you happy. Just make you happy.